Logical Progression, Year 4, Chapter 13, Lesson 6. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين ولا عاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا للظالمين وصلوات الله وسلامه على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جاءته سهلا وأنت تجل الحزن إذا شئ سهلا اللهم أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته حياكم الله Okay, so today's an interesting lesson. Differentiates it from the non-interesting lessons. Um, actually, to be honest, I think all the lessons so far in Kitab Salah have been interesting. I deem a lesson interesting by the populist meaning of interesting because I think, from my point of view, or certainly from a student of knowledge point of view, he considers or she considers just going through the text as interesting because that's where the knowledge is. I think from a populist, contemporary kind of, you know, perspective, then it's only if there's some modern kind of stuff which is talked about, or some modern kind of links and current affairs thrown in, or issues which are, I don't know, stressing people out. If there's one of those kind of things thrown in, then it becomes interesting. Like, you know, people who uh, fall into a problem commonly, such as not waking up for prayer, or such as... uh, uh, an issue which is interesting, such as operations and whether you pray. So it's sad that, but it's also carrying along the same kind of line, today is also another interesting lesson. The lesson next week will be probably more, uh, less interesting, quote-unquote, but about a thousand times more important. And that's, that's to actually complete and close the chapter on the obligatory nature of the prayer to their level that if someone does not pray, what is their ruling? Are they a non-Muslim or not? Is there a punishment to be attributed to them or not? Etc. Etc. Today, however, we are in a section which is is in the translation. These are the two paragraphs that we will be covering today. Bismillah. Uh, children, ويؤمر بها صغير لسبعين ويضرب عليها لعشر. فإن بلغ في أثنائها أو بعدها في وقتها أعاد ويحرم تأخيرها عن وقتها إلا لناوي الجمع ولمشتغل بشرطها الذي يحصله قريبا Children are not ordered to perform it meaning the prayer sorry, let me start again Children are ordered to perform it when seven and physically disciplined for not doing it at ten If the child was to reach adolescence during the actual prayer or after it, while still within its legal time, it is to be repeated. It is not permissible to delay the prayer beyond its time unless intending to join prayers or being involved in fulfilling one of the conditions for prayer, a condition which is close to completion. All right, so that's the, uh, uh, the translation. Let's start, start off straight away then with the first statement which Sheikh Al-Uthaymeen alayhi rahmatullah he uh, starts explaining on page 20 of the commentary okay page 20 and he starts by stating this the, the statement of Imam Al-Hajjawi alayhi rahmatullah the author of Zad al-Mustaqni' who says وَيُؤْمَرُ بِهَا صَغِيرٌ that um, I guess if you just translate just this part a uh, child is ordered to pray, ordered, 
يؤمر مبني للمجهول يؤمر uh, is in the passive sense yes ordered that's right yeah passive that's how you say it in English isn't it yeah meaning that we don't know who orders him that's what I mean yeah so ordered and that therefore keeps it open that it's not something which necessarily has to come from the mother and father which is the obvious thought yes you normally expect the mother or the father to uh, do that um, so uh, as Sheikh Uthameen says whoever has authority over this child then they are the one that will command this child to pray could be a father could be a brother could be a sister could be an uncle could be an auntie could be anyone so there's no specific person that this order has been applied to that's according to the actual statement <coughs> of Imam al-Hajjawi and then he specifies it by saying at the age of seven and that and he is uh, or they are uh, and I have obviously being the PC kind of guy that I am okay have translated it as uh, physically disciplined at the age of 10 why do I say that there's the politically correct aspect of course saying that he's beaten which is the actual translation from daraba yadribu darban daraba in any kind of way uh, uh, means to strike means to beat means to hit that's what the word linguistically means um, so we've got two options we either translate it literally exactly like that and just put the hard hats on and hope no one sees recordings and stuff like that okay which is not possible these days um, and so you translate it in a more politically correct way uh, whatever and um, uh, or you know uh, so that's obviously one of the issues about the society that you're translating it for but there is a second actual point which is important as well and that is that sometimes sometimes there's, there's, there's three points actually the second reason is is that at a time where people don't understand the fiqh of beating for all intents and purposes or the fiqh of capital punishment or uh, uh, what's that the punishment corporal corporal school. yeah corporal. corporal with the al yeah corporal which i i um that's one of the famous typos by the way the famous typos in protector's house okay the al-maghrib binder the maghrib binder i must have taught that class 20 times before someone spotted it by the way which does make you wonder because it says the chapter of capital punishment for children it is permissible to do capital punishment for children and it was like i don't know somewhere random i think it was i don't know in like toronto or somewhere someone goes sheikh is that meant to say capital i said yeah, of course it is i've taught this class 20 times <laughs> he goes, you do know what capital means i go yeah you know obviously physical punishment you know they go sheikh capital punishment is to knock him out and kill him that's what you're talking about they go, there's corporal punishment. Like, I said, oh my goodness gracious me. 20 times, <laughs> average of 300. There was a few 500s, a few 700s. I'm talking a good six, 7,000 people must have studied that. Yeah. I don't know if they thought that capital punishment was allowed. But anyway, alhamdulillah, we explained it in an explanation that they didn't come across. Anyway, so the point is, is that um, uh, at a time, and actually for many, for many years, um, uh, have 
our people culturally understood the actual fiqh behind physical discipline, okay? And whether hitting has any parameters and so on and so forth. That's the real issue. And you can almost say that there are a number of people, and I have to say maybe I'm one, one of them, who are, are kind of not, uh, what's the word, confident enough to use the full statement in case people then start applying it in a literal sense. And they don't realize that it has a number of conditions, such as uh, it's, it's meant to be for scaring, not meant to be for torture. It's not meant to be a form of punishment in that it's one that one seeks revenge by or something like that, but it's one to warn by and so on and so forth. And you can change all the phrases as you, as you deem necessary, that it cannot leave physical marks and the like and so on and so forth. And, you know, all these number of, of conditions. Because people are not aware of that, then generally, generally, um, you feel kind of not too happy about using it. But there's a third reason as well, and it's a fascinating reason. The hadith that this is taken from is actually very similar to the statement of the text. And it has a few different narrations. But in one of them, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said, that pass the prayer by your children, like muru, yani, you know, um, you, could, you could literally uh, uh, translate the hadith as walk the prayer by your child, walk, walk it by them. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah? It's almost like if you're standing there, you know, let it pass by. Yani, almost, yani, uh, 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 it's meant to indicate a sense of encouragement, but not going in too tough. Not going in too hard, okay? وَهُمْ أَبْنَاءُ سَبَعٍ Whilst they are uh, seven years old. وَضْرِبُوهُمْ عَلَيْهَا وَهُمْ أَبْنَاءُ عَشَرٍ And hit them or beat them over it when they are ten. وَفَرِّقُوا بَيْنَهُمْ فِي الْمَضَاجِعِ As you know. And uh, diff- uh, separate between them in the beds. So meaning at the age of ten, after the age of ten, one should not um, have children together in beds. And there's some discussion about this as well. Not for us now. This hadith is a very famous hadith. Would you agree? Yes, everyone's heard this hadith about some aspect of it. Whether they heard the first part, whether they heard the second part only, whether they heard it all together, that you teach the children when they are seven, teach the children the prayer when they're seven, discipline them over it when they are ten, and separate between them in their beds as well at the age of ten. Hadith has been narrated by Imam Ahmed, it has been narrated by Imam At-Tirmidhi and a few other places as well. The fascinating thing is that despite its huge uh, uh, popularity and well kind of knownness yani, with all of people, all the Muslims, all the scholars and so on, this hadith at best is Hassan. At best, meaning it is fair. But you remember that uh, a quick reminder, obviously we've covered this before, that when you grade hadith, remember a hadith has two aspects that you grade them by. You have the chain, which are the people who narrate the hadith, that's called the isnad. Then you have the text itself, which is called the meta. Alright? And in general, 99.9% of the scholars are not qualified to deal with the meta, the text. That's called textual criticism. It's reserved for the very, very, very few. It's not possible for basically scholars to look at a text and say, you don't sound right, or you don't feel right, or I don't really 
follow you. I don't really, you know, that kind of statement is reserved for like one in one million scholars. You could name them on your, you know, probably a couple of pairs of hands, basically, all right? Throughout history, I'm talking about. And today, you might find a few splattering here and there that have the ability to know Islam so well, to know the Prophet so deeply, to understand this religion in such a depth that they are able to make a statement about the Sunnah without their emotions uh, uh, taking over, without their biases and their experiences yani overcoming. You can imagine what a nightmare that would be if we allowed such a principle in this country or in the West, where every day a little bit of pressure comes onto a person and they start to crumble and then they enter tradition of deen. You understand the reason why it's such a safeguard. So um, you can uh, basically attack both aspects of a narration. When I say attack, I mean criticize academically in order to determine whether it's authentic or not. As I said, the majority, as I said, the science of authentication is overwhelmingly focused on the chain, the people. That's replicable, sustainable science. It's, it's teachable, meaning you can study it, you can see the roots, and it's something which you can scientifically analyze. It has incredibly varying levels of skill, and that's why the, the mustalah al-hadith the science of hadith or the ilm al the specific knowledge of asparaging narrators and disparaging narrators. What that means basically is to look at a person who narrates a hadith and establish that he is authentic, trustworthy and A1 and we should use this person like someone who Imam Bukhari uses for his hadith. Or we look at a person, study his statements, life and everything and we realize actually he is zero. He is either weak, old, lies, he is someone who even worse fabricates in order to try and ruin the religion. He is Kathar, he is Munkar, etc. So this is actually quite easy to analyze. Easy in that it is studyable. It still is only a very only practiced by a few people. Now, when we look at a hadith, I said we focus on the chain. And this chain has effectively three main rulings. Okay? A chain is either in principle authentic, which is the word sahih. So we say this hadith is sahih, that means super okay. That means it is absolutely authentic, there's no doubt about it. Then you have the second level, mid-level, like a, like, a, like, a, like a six, all right, or out of a ten, all right? And five is the pass mark. And that would be called hasan. The word hasan in Arabic means good. And it's good, that's all. It's fair, it's acceptable. All these are the synonyms which basically determine a hadith. And then the bottom, at the bottom, okay, is a hadith which is inauthentic. It is not, it's not authentic, it's not acceptable for the use of law. This is called da'if, weak, alright? Now, there are subcategories in between. For example, a weak hadith may be a three. A hadith which is da'if jidden, which means it's very weak, might be a two. A hadith which is a complete fabrication would be a zero, for example. And that's called hadith mawdu'ah. And that's a hadith which can't even be mentioned. It's a disgrace. It's a, it's a complete lie, etc., etc., etc. Likewise, a hadith which is hasan is either hasan or fair in of itself, in that it was able to establish its own authenticity by itself. It's good. Or there was a hadith which is repeated by 10 different people, 10 different times, 10 different chains. Each one of the chains has some kind of weakness. So in of themselves, each hadith or, ver or version of the hadith is weak, 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 but only slightly so. So much so that if you were to combine all ten together, you have a compelling argument that actually this hadith was probably something that was said or did happen. 
Therefore, we give this a status, we upgrade it, and we call it Hassan Lighayrihi. This hadith is authentic is, is acceptable due to supporting evidences, due to external reasons, not in of itself, not if you were to hold one of the narrations. So this is like what we call like a four and a half or five. Alright? And I hope you understand that. This is called Lighayrihi. Even Sahih has a Lighayrihi. So a hadith might not be super authentic by itself, but there might be ten Hassan chains, acceptable chains. And then if you add them all together, we consider that these would then therefore strengthen and upgrade this narration on the whole to sahih, authentic, super authentic and sound due to supporting narrations. I can say this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ saying that teach your children to pray at the age of seven, beat them over it at the age of ten and separate them, separate between them in the beds is a hadith which is most likely to be weak. Okay, that's my personal opinion. Okay, this hadith is most likely to be weak. However, a number of significant scholars, they did consider this hadith to be Hassan. Some said Hassan al-Ghayrihi and so on. Tellingly, tellingly, none of the major imams consider this hadith to be authentic. Tellingly, I don't know of a major imam of any of the schools of any type that said this hadith is sahih clearly from the earliest scholars. But like, for example, I was reading Ibn Muflih, one of the famous uh, Hanbalis, he was mentioning his hadith. He goes, in Sahih hadith. You know, in Sahih hadith, when you hear a scholar say that, you immediately start to be on tenterhooks. It basically means that if the hadith is authentic, and then he carries on with his statement, then da 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 if the hadith is authentic. So he goes along the premise that the hadith is authentic and he moves forward, which is a common practice and it's okay. Because... You see, there's another science that we, there's another principle that we need to uh, uh, accept. Just because a hadith is not authentic, does not mean the hadith is to be rejected. Okay, as I said, if the hadith is not incredibly weak, then we don't need to treat it so harshly. Also, it's possible that even quite a weak hadith has an absolutely authentic meaning. Does that make sense? It's like I could say, for example, that you know, and this is of course not true. The Prophet ﷺ said that the prayer is the life force and the superpower and the kryptonite uh, of the... Does kryptonite, uh, kryptonite weaken or strengthen? Oh, that's not good then. So, what's the opposite of kryptonite? Sun. And it is this... I've lost my superman references here. Yeah, okay, I need to revise those, yeah? It is the sun of the believer. Yeah? Now, that's not true. The Prophet never said that. But the hadith is authentic in meaning. Because it is our life force. It is more powerful to us than anything else. The, the believer who does it has everything. The believer who loses it, loses everything. Do you agree with what I'm saying? So we'll say, the hadith is weak. The Prophet never said that. But the hadith is, is, is correct in meaning. Do you understand that point? And so I want to say that, even though a hadith might be weak, and so again, back to this hadith, this hadith is controversial. Some said weak. Some said hasan. Some said hasan ghayrihi. Few said authentic. None of the major imams considered it to be authentic. Major imams. Okay? Even like Imam Ahmed said, I think it's alright. Alright. You know these kind of statements. Okay? Um, even if this hadith was of this status and even if the hadith was weak as it seems to be, even with the different chains of it, its meaning still could be authentic. Its meaning still could be authentic. Is that clear everybody? Is that clear? But then we ask a more, I think a more fascinating question. Let's look at the matter and ask ourselves, 
is the, is the meaning even of this hadith authentic? Now, the reason I find this a fascinating question is that if you were to ask any elder, parent, any generation, any group of scholars at any time in history, they wouldn't question, would you not agree, the meaning of this hadith. They would say, of course it's authentic. How else are you going to, you know, get the job done? What's so anti-Islam in this hadith? What's so, what's your problem with the hadith anyway? Do you understand my, my, my point? Is that true? You think that's the only, a fair statement? Alright, do you think that you, anyone can put an argument up against it? Yeah. So let's have a look at that, right? We're all accepting this hadith as like gospel for the use of a, you know, for the use of a better word. Yet we know for a fact, more authentically, narrated by Anas in Bukhari, that the Prophet never beat a child. Okay? Never beat a child. Never beat anyone, actually, for that matter, other than in war. People were obviously, you can argue, people were amazing around him. No one freaked him out. No one upset him. You can maybe say that, okay? You can maybe say that in defense of all of us yani, who do beat the kids, right? But that's the fact. The Prophet ﷺ never ever beat a child. So that's an interesting side argument. Okay, does that necessarily make the hadith inauthentic? Not necessarily. It just shows you a higher road, yes? Shows you the, the, the higher moral position, all right? Any other points? If we were critiquing this concept or this meaning, there's one obvious one. Sorry, first, yeah. I was going to say, um, you're scaring your children to pray. Does that relate to bringing your children? So, so, okay, so let's, let's, let's discuss this point. You're scaring your children into prayer. Um, and is that really good? I would argue back with two points. I would say that the hadith itself, certainly at the early stage, doesn't suggest any scaring. So up to 10, I mean, okay. So um, because the statement of teach your children to pray does not mean that it needs to be done in a, in a bad way. And then the second aspect of that to the, to the first, uh, my, my first point of response is that and not necessarily beating if understood exactly as per what would be Islamically permissible, there would not be any form of the beating that we recognize, like beats, but we're talking like the threat, or we're talking like the warning shot, or the expression of anger, which is so rare. And if you, of course, if you have a household built upon the prophetic household, there is no display of that kind of, you know, uh, loss of kind of control, not loss of control, the anger, basically. And so even the slightest expression is a huge shock to your security and your stability. And you know, as packs, that's really difficult for us to understand. But that's not physical discipline. That's not physical discipline. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm saying that there would still be a physical outcome. But a physical outcome that we would not maybe as packs consider to be anything. Like if you got a little slap, for example, right? Or kick up the backside. Now, you know, many of us households would think, you know, this is all a bit of fun and games. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, this is my right. Let's have a whistle. Whereas you might be some Goran household, you get that, you might be having a heart attack. You literally think this is unbelievable. I'm being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. 
I don't want to send this in to protect this house. I don't want to send this in to protect this house because uh, I cover this in detail. <laughs> but what I want to say is that when we do study this in parenting, okay, um, you, you <laughs> I, I put forward to the, to the students mm -hmm. that in actual fact, the Gora model, okay, the basically the non uh, Russell Peters model, basically, right, and not a normal human model, is very, very much a prophetic model, which is that there is absolutely no uh, violence at that level, and so therefore, even the slightest hint or even expression of it has a huge amplified consequence. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Okay. And the example that I give, and I don't mind giving it here in this class, okay, here's a Trump example though, is a uh, TV interview that I saw once of uh, Thingy. Um, what's the, uh, you know, the, the, the TV couple that used to do the, uh, uh, huh? Richard and Judy, yes. What's his name, Richard what? Richard Finnegan? Richard Maidley. Richard Maidley. Richard Maidley, of course, famous TV presenter in the UK, for the folks who don't live in the UK, and, you know, like a, a family favourite, you know, housewife's favourite, he's on TV, you know, in the mornings and so on, or was, I don't think he's on TV anymore, is he, right? So anyway, this guy, he wrote a book about his life, because he became very popular and very famous, and he was like a trusted face and so on, and he was being interviewed, I think, by Piers Morgan, or he could have been interviewed by someone, I don't know who he was being interviewed by, but it was going to be an hour long, a very deep, deep, you know, introspection of his life and so on and so forth. And he spoke about a time which, I don't really want to talk about it now, but I just want to, I, I, I want to summarize by saying that there was a 15 minute segment that was built up, yeah, in terms of the dramatics and the, the background music and the lighting, that this was like the biggest thing that had ever happened, like in the history of child abuse, okay? And, you know, he, was, he had written about it in his book and so on and so forth. And his father and, you know, that there was this relationship, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, you know, like everyone else probably is, yeah, waiting to see what happened, what happened. And he's explaining that, you know, his father came upstairs, this, that, blah, blah, blah. And that, you didn't know what was going on. And blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we're thinking, goodness gracious, I hope that this is going to be something really horrible. I hope that Bilal, turn off the TV, turn off the thing, he's yeah, I don't want to hear it, and whatever. He's thinking, obviously, something, you know, bad. Guy goes, trousers came down, I was like, oh my God. And then, astaghfirullah, I think, astaghfirullah. And then he goes, he goes, I felt it. What was not sure what was going on, really, the first time? I thought, no, man, don't say that. And then, then, and then he goes, I felt it. And then, I, and then, and then this is kind of stinging afterwards. It started stinging afterwards, but then, I didn't realize, and then he said to me, you know, in fairness, he said to me before what he did, this is what I'm doing, what I'm going to do, okay? And then after he finished, he goes, don't remember do that again. And then he went, and it broke him. It broke him, it was a broken man after that. I was broken as well, this, that, whatever. <laughs> I was thinking, maybe I didn't understand what the hell happened then. <laughs> but basically, what he's done is that he's pulled his trousers down, he's hit him behind his knees, Yanni, with his hand a couple of times, Yanni, okay? <laughs> And he's made it out to be like the guy got like, like killed, yeah, you know what I'm saying, yeah? <laughs> I'm thinking, what on earth, Yanni, yeah, is that? Yeah? What on earth is that? Yeah? And, of course, we don't understand because we're facts. Because, <laughs> you know, that is something that, as I said to you, would be a complete joke. If your dad did that, when you're in trouble, you'd be like, 
What the heck is that? Hiran is going to try that, that again. So, so, so the point I'm making is that it's all funny and it's all, you know, whatever. Okay, because we're used to beats, proper beats, quality beats, stylish beats, you know, tools, torture instruments, the things. We learn lots of different amazing facts during childhood. We never knew that a barrow could be used in the way that it is. We never knew realized that your fingers could be part of Yanni things and all kinds of stuff. You know, teeth come into it, hair. You didn't expect hair could be causing so much pain. Oh yes, twisting the hair is painful. Yeah, and all the rest of it. Whereas there's a whole world out there which we thought was all soft and pathetic and sell out and liberal, which might just be actually, as I put forward to the class, the prophetic model which is that in the complete absence of any violence, the slightest bit of it has a huge impact upon the person and everyone around them. And I have to say, and Allah knows best, that certainly that Yanni joke model was closer to the prophetic one than our one. Do you understand what I'm saying? Than the pack one, where Yanni bathroom, you can try to get to it and it's Yanni <laughs> going to hold, but only for God knows how long, Yanni, you know what I'm saying? We've got a whole different concept of physical punishment to these guys. Who are just yani. So, I, my point is this: is that, is that I actually think it's a very strong argument to say that um, number one, physical punishment not being met, met out by the Prophet sallallahu meted out by the Prophet sallallahu uh, is a strong argument against this hadith. I think that the fact that um, the hadith itself um, doesn't mention violence is not a major point because. There is a physical reality to it. But there was something second I was going to say to you as well, but I forgot what that was. Oh, yeah, secondly, you said that... Um, uh, what, was it, what was the point you exactly said? You forgot it as well because we killed the point. Yeah, yeah. Um, we shouldn't be scaring. But I'm just saying that, you know what? I think that's also very much a reflection of the time that we live in. So I, I think that's a very subjective argument. I think you've got back 100 years, 200 years, and then 1,000 years... There's no one who's worrying about that, arguably. However, in response, you could say to me, well, I don't think so. The hadith that you just, the Prophet, the, if the Prophet has never hit a child, then maybe we've got it wrong. That was actually how it used to be in a liberal sense. So that could be an argument. Someone from behind uh, mentioned an argument against this hadith, quote unquote. Well, I asked, yeah. Is there any evidence yeah, so that's another point, right? Do we see from the companions this? In actual fact, we don't. We don't see many narrations. I will say that the permissibility of beating a child or physically disciplining a child is something which pretty much the, there is a consensus on the permissibility of. So it is permissible. And Imam Ahmed himself has, has gone on record saying that it is absolutely permissible and so on. And in general, it is for major discipline issues and major kind of problems and so on and so forth. Okay, So in the background, it is something which the scholars have generally allowed. But in response to your question from the companions, we don't see it. We don't see it. You know, it's not like narrated many, many times over and so on and so forth. So that's another point. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, if the child's not um, This is the strongest argument, okay? This is what I was waiting for someone to say. If this hadith is authentic, if this hadith is authentic, how does it make sense when we know Islamically a child is not obliged to pray until they are mature anyway, until they go through puberty? 
And that is the strongest argument, actually, converse argument. And it is an argument that even some scholars put forward to consider the hadith to be weak, matnan. Meaning that they consider the hadith text even to be problematic because it goes against the principle. I think, by the way, that's an extreme overreaction. I don't think that the point that you make, uh, which was made by many scholars, by, not many scholars, but by a number of scholars, I don't think that that's a refutation of the hadith. Because, um, as we all know, the fact that just because that a child is punished, um, they're no longer a child then, of course, when they become mature, I don't think that that refutes necessarily the need for a system leading up to it. Okay? I don't think he refutes it. But it's certainly a companion argument against if someone was studying the hadith. And here's the key point, especially students of knowledge, here's a key point. Most scholars will not entertain criticizing the matan until they achieve confidence from the Senate. So they'll wait and they'll study and they'll wait. And once they see from the hadith that the chain has issues and they see that the hadith is fatally weak, then now we've got the confidence to now say, well, let's now actually also have a little go at the matan as well and see whether it stands up. Okay? After saying all that, as you were saying, yeah. Oh, just a comment, actually. You mentioned, you know, this is the difference between the way we do it and the way it's done in English people, actually. But only 30, 40 years ago, it was very different, actually. In schools, it was acceptable to take a slip at your children. When I was growing up, yeah. So things have moved a lot in the past 30 years in this country. We haven't seen this phrase, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Yes. That was something quite strong. So what, what if I say to you that even that 30, 50 kind of year... Uh, gap or whatever even going back 50 years it was a very very orchestrated disciplined form of punishment hmm. that's very different from pack punishment yeah, pack punishment is uncontrolled <laughs> <laughs> yani, zero discipline in, yani, full full creativity no time, limit. yani, no time limits no numbers yeah. no such thing as numbers you're getting five lashes. What the heck is that? Five lashes? Five? <laughs> We're going to get down with five. But anyway, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, but the other point I was going to make was interesting the Prophet never ever disciplined children that way. And if you look at social psychology, one of the reasons it's changed in this country is it's been shown that negative reinforcers are not as powerful as positive reinforcers. And here's, the, and here's a very interesting point. As Dr. Shazad said, you know, science is proven today. Actually, forget science. All of us as parents know anecdotally, you know, or I think parents generally learn afterwards that people become immune. You know, we really are all bat fins, Yanni. <laughs> we all have, what is it? Our bat fins, our wings are like a shield of steel. <laughs> After a while, Yanni, you know, it becomes, people just, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Bones become tough, things become big, you know what I'm saying? Yeah? So, um, actually, we know nowadays that there's a whole different concept of punishment and, um, and actually a far more effective uh, form of punishment, which is not saying what you're saying, but I mean, for example, the prohibition of certain things and treats and so on and so forth, which are emotionally far more uh, depressing for the child than other things. So that's a point to recognize. Also, as Dr. Zad said, that there is actually more greater chance of you getting or there's science to show or there's proof to show that you're likely to get better results with positive reinforcement as opposed to negative punishment tactics and that's again an arguable point both ways but it's a very important one so there's a lot there to uh, look at what can we conclude i can say that even if we conclude as i personally believe the head is to be weak 
A number of scholars consider it to be authentic, and I think we should consider it to be so. Authentic meaning hasan, okay? And I think that we should, as a working kind of movement going forward, I think we should consider it so. But I think that academically we should always know in the back of our mind that there is potentially a problem even with the meaning of this hadith and with the authenticity of this hadith. But it doesn't really change anything on the ground. What it might do is to change our methodology slightly, but not the principles. So the principle is sound, that we have to start educating our children early for the Qur'an. Because we know that if you delay until the age of puberty, that's the age that you've lost them by, by then. I mean, that's anecdotally, that's historically, that's scientifically, whatever. Even scientifically, if you look at actual ages of influence, uh, as we do in Protect This House, when you break down the, the gaps, 0 to 2, 2 to 7, 7 till 10, and then 10 till 12, and then 12. If you look at each of these different gaps, you'll see that child psychologists and educationists, educationalists, they, they give different qualities and characteristics to children at that time. Who has greater influence upon them at that time? What happens when they move up and everyone go to a bigger school? Then they start to see the authority of the child's teacher, school, uh, parents' uh, authority diminishes. Then there are other figures that start to take prominence. Then the issue of peer groups. Then the issue of associated group behavior becomes very, very powerful and takes over instructions from home. Then the rebellious period kicks in. And then it's cool to be different, etc., 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 etc. So there's no doubt that any positive, negative, or any sort of tactics that are utilized before when a child is malleable and flexible and can be programmed in a certain way, then that must be done. Ultimately, and even if this hadith is authentic, it is not an objective in of itself to cause harm or scare. The idea is to achieve the prayer. And so, of course, this hadith is not obligatory to act by. So if someone might ask the question, if, if it is authentic, and the Prophet ﷺ said, do this at 7 and do it at 10, the, it's an interesting hadith in that no scholar will say, if, if a child doesn't pray, it's obligatory to hit him. It is, the correct meaning is, if the child doesn't pray and you are able to make them pray without hitting them, then that's what you should do. Do you understand that? And that's also a big jump in science had in, in the hadith in the hadith of science in the sciences of hadith for you to make that statement because that's a risky one. Because we are going against the obvious meaning of the hadith. But that's because we are, why do we do that? Because we understood the illa. We understood the reason why the statement of darb has been used, because it's in order to achieve something. And so if you're able to achieve that without the actual action, then it can be done and should be done. Okay? I think that's an important point. Yes? Well, the point is that people can use spiking the child and use that to justify it. And the fact is, people, you know, you're talking about the fickle beating. People are not going to understand the nuances of, of beating and how to beat correctly. So this is going to be widely abused, and it is widely abused. Which is why, like I said, at the very beginning, because it's so abused, this hadith, okay, why... Uh, people like myself prefer to translate it in a slightly different way. Always prefer to. So that's what I was saying. I said not only translate it because a translation only is a possible reading of ten seconds, but also I don't like to quote the hadith without explaining it. Right. So this is not the kind of hadith which you throw away and post, like you know, on in an article without actually giving an explanation. That's what I mean. And that shouldn't be obligatory, but I believe that self-responsibility means it should be in order to, you know, explain each time. 
Now, people could say, you're only doing that because of political pressure, maybe, but I believe that from the Islamic angle, we have the obligation as well, because people get it wrong. We can now add that third caveat, which I just said, that maybe the hadith isn't even authentic in the first place. And so therefore, let's re-then enforce the actual principle. Should it be done? Well, you know what? Beating in of itself is nothing of any benefit and is not obligatory in of itself. The Prophet ﷺ never did it. And if we can achieve anything that we want without it, then we should do that. And so I want to say to you that now, I don't want anyone as a result... And let me just actually finish the, the text itself. Sheikh um, Uthameen... In, he continues with the hadith assuming this authenticity. <coughs> According to Sheikh Uthameen, I know that he considers this hadith to be authentic. Okay, And I want to say to you that it's no problem if we do the same. But what we learn is an academic side which I think is useful to keep in the locker. But we will now continue with the hadith assuming its meaning and its chain is authentic. Okay, Sheikh Uthameen says that when they are asked to uh, pray at the age of seven, it means its completion and not, yani, um, uh, 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 and not just reaching it. فَلَا إِلَّا إِذَا دَخَلَ الثَّامِنَةِ He says they are not taught to pray until, or encouraged to pray, until they enter the eighth. So remember what we said about the ages and so on and so forth. Okay, Because there are some ulama that said that this applies at what age? No. Six and no six and one day because they said it's the entering of the seventh. That seven is the entering of the seventh. Okay, that's what they said. And likewise, um, uh, uh, and likewise the same with ten as well. Nine and then one day. Okay, but in actual fact, as Sheikh Uthameen says, he says the correct understanding is seven and one day. Because it is the completion of seven years and then the entering into the eighth. Alright? So even from Sheikh Uthameen and every scholar who keeps laboring this point, there's a reasoning behind it. What's that reasoning? The reasoning is, is but it's twofold. One, they don't want to put this kind of emotional, let alone physical, pressure and make that some kind of norm, an early introduction into the life of a child. Does that make sense? Yeah? I hope you understand that. Yeah? That's really important. And um, the second reason is, is that there is a theory from the Sunnah which I think mirrors the Scandinavian system, the more progressive education systems which I talk about in Protect This House, which is that actually when it comes to children, the idea that we have like in this country which is get them into nursery at three and four and start packing them in with private tuition at five and six and start nursery, blah, blah, blah. That's one model. Or the Indian model which is as soon as they're able to go gaga, start teaching them nuclear physics, yani, whatever, whatnot, yeah? Okay? And, you know, make them all physicists by the age of five. Whatever it is, yes? That's the, other, that's the extreme model. Then you've got like another extreme model which is don't let them do anything until they're 10, 12 or whatever. And then you've got this Scandinavian model which is praised all around the world, okay? And it's in general, all right? Finland, Sweden, here and there. Which is in the middle. Which is basically, they don't have this concept of school or nursery and infants and so on. And it's only really around the age of six, seven, eight, whatever. After, the ch- after children have really, really enjoyed themselves. And I would say... Um, you know, uh, built a huge level of trust with their peers, 
with their uh, teachers and so on, who they might see and have contact with, but they're not being taught anything they don't want to know. So it's all about fun and trust and so on. And then they're taught, yeah, you know, quite late. Educationally, they're taught very late compared to a UK standard. However, their results, quality of life, all the rest of it, you all know about. Okay, it's through the roof, and it's all great. So you see, like that Japanese Indian craziness on one side, and then you got some I don't know what model on the other side. In the middle, you have the Scandinavian approach. What's fascinating for me is that it seems that the Sunnah is in line with the middle way. Now, why is that important? It's important because you all know that Muslim parents, okay, regardless of how practicing they are or not, regardless of how practicing they are or not, they're obsessed with making their children do certain Islamic things when they're very, very young. So you'll know that, you know, at the age of two and three, get them on the musalla, get them wearing a hat, a jilbab, and this and that, whatever, and dress them up and so on. And I see two things here. I see one which is a level of kind of cuteness and, and innocence, and that's fine. That's like dressing up a child in a dress, and that's like, you know, I don't know, doing things that fathers want or whatever with their son, a bit of bonding and stuff and play. I get that. But then there's a slightly more, I think, an ignorant and confused version of the same thing, which is that, that, that you know what? I have to get my child to pray when they're very, very young. All right? And it's, it's good intentioned, of course, but obviously, these you know good things don't just come by intention, and so therefore uh, we have this like I've got to get them to pray by four and five, and if they're not praying properly by five, and they don't know all of the prayers, and they don't know the physical realities, and so on and so forth, then you know by the time time that seven comes, they're going to be lost, and so on and so forth. What are we saying? We're saying that look, you know what? Let the child enjoy, let the child observe, set the example that you should be. And that's why I said that the parents who generally do this, some of them, they don't even care about their own prayer themselves. Okay? And if a mother is being done according to the sunnah, you'll know this unfeasible, impossible, impossible. Like Sheikh Walid put. Okay? And that's why it's such a humiliation of the Muslims today that we have Muslims who don't pray. It's, a, it's impossible to believe that a Muslim is told to pray says, I'm not going to pray. I mean, you know, right? A Muslim who calls himself a Muslim or herself a Muslim and knows that Allah commanded them to pray, and they tell themselves every day, I don't really need to pray. I'm good enough, or I'm too tired, or I'll pray later. That's not the reason. But they've been taught to pray and don't pray. It's unfeasible. It's just not, it's not possible. Alright? And so, if there is such a person, then I don't care what that person does, they're not going to get anything out of their child except through the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now that person is, is without a shadow of a doubt going to mess up the tarbiyah of their child. Without a shadow of a doubt is going to mess up bringing their child up the right way on prayer. And so therefore, what I want to suggest is this. Is that actually if a person has confidence in the sunnah and confidence in what is actually obligatory upon them as well, then they will be praying every single day. Especially the mothers at home. And the mothers at home who are praying and the little children are seeing this regularly. We are, as children, all creatures of habit. And we look at the people that we love most. And again, if you look at the psychology, you will see at the very young age, it's not just that they copy people around them, but those that are close are like superheroes. Because they do every single thing that they can't. And they give them all the single things that they want. So they give them an authority much more than just being a friend. So a mother and a father is something incredible. And so that bond has to be used and abused. Okay. Therefore, every single action that a child, a father or mother wants to instill into the child, will do it yourself. Yeah. And you will see the impact. So that's whether hijab, whether that's yani, respect for a beard, for example, as opposed to the belief of a non-beard, or whether that's a prayer action, or whether that's 
you know, charity, for example, and allowing children to see charity being given regularly or reciting the Quran. And you can't just be telling people not reciting yourself, etc., etc., etc. And so I don't believe, I don't believe that going away from this hadith will have a better impact than sticking with this hadith. Rather, you have the confidence that you don't need to actually start teaching the child formally the prayer until seven. Okay? Before then, certainly no problem. If the child is standing next to you and gets a few things wrong, you correct the child, as I, I say. You know, the, he, normally they've got the left on the right. So what you might do is just, you know, kind of on the slide, just put the right on the left just so that they know. And you're not really telling them to stand and pray, but you let them come and pray. Or you might just call them and say, hey, I'm praying. And you might kind of not put it upon them and they kind of come and stand and so on and so forth. It's like a hands-off approach and a subtle one. And I believe that is the correct way. As for statements and so on and so forth, then that's okay to actually uh, revise and repeat and to get the child to memorize and so on and so forth as part of a process. There's no problem with that because we, we generally tend to find that the more that you've got that practice, then the actual prayer itself is going to become easier. For um, at that time, we have to then start to teach the children uh, purification and other obligations as well. Um, and Sheikh says, with respect to the age of 10, with respect to physical punishment, he goes, and that does not happen only unless the child refuses. ويشترط فيه أن لا يكون ضربا مبرحا لأن المقصود تأذيبه لا تأذيبه that he said that this is only of course if they refuse to pray and it should be considered for every single individual prayer time and it doesn't matter if it's done with just so that you, you see that it's done with a hand or a thobe or a stick okay now three is very different things have been mentioned Okay, a stick of course is very hard and very yani, painful. A hand, of course, is in the medium, and then obviously a thobe is virtually nothing. Okay, which goes to show you that actually it's not about the maximum physical force which is imparted by those things, but showing that it's an object in order to achieve an objective. And he said that it is a com- condition that it does not leave a mark. It is more, not mubarrih, and also that the objective is ta'deeb, discipline, not punishment. Not ta'zeeb. Okay? It is not punishing the child, it's disciplining. It's like showing the system. It's like the slap at the, as we, as one, as we know, it's the slap to show that you're serious. So when you um, have a child who is about to run out into the road, for example, okay, and you yank their hand, and it's painful. It might be painful. If you yank their hand backwards and the car goes by, that yanking was not to punish the child, it was to associate the movement of going out with a physical uh, uh, recompense. So it causes discipline. So that's very, very clear in the Sharia, even with those who follow this hadith and accept it and so on and so forth. Okay, everybody? Okay, I see there's some questions. So let's quickly take um, those. Yeah. Is this hadith the, the only evidence... Yes, this this hadith in its variations. There are variations of it, but all of them pretty much say the same thing. Teach at 7, pass it by at 7, discipline at 10, hit them at 10, get serious at 10, and so on. So there are many versions of this hadith, but all of them are saying the same thing effectively. Yeah. 
Yes, yes. Uh, you know, on the other side, we also see many companions or many uh, you know, very young age, before seven, maybe members of Quran or maybe have very good knowledge. So how can we fit that in with this uh, model where we're saying, okay, if this hadith is sahih, then uh, that model which Scandinavian or Sweden where they're applying about their education, uh, whether it's a start of education or any education, that how would that apply in line with those uh, Sahaba who learned Islam and Quran and very good as well? Very good. So the question basically is, is that if this is truly, if we're saying that Islam is a Sweden or Scandinavian kind of model, then how did we even start our early education and all of the many, many proofs to show that actual memorization and so on starts early. And that's the proof to show that Islam does not follow any model. It has its own unique model. And so when I was referring to the Scandinavian, I mean, obviously, in certain aspects, it's obviously a later model that has some ideas and theories. With respect to the prayer itself, we can apply it and say it's the same, in that this is a methodological system which is starting something which is obligatory. By that, I mean that the actual legal um, accountability for the prayer is much later, much, much later. Yet we will start it at a time where we're not going to rush. That's the point. Likewise, Quran and uh, dhikr and so on and so forth, when it comes to the essential parts, they are also not to be rushed. And anything else, Anything else is from the recommended actions, not obligatory. So, for example, knowing dhikr before age seven is recommended, not obligatory. Knowing Quran even before age seven is recommended, not obligatory. It could actually be even argued that way past seven and ten, and even further, the level amount of, of Quran that needs to be known above and beyond the prayer, is it obligatory or not? There's a discussion there as well. Okay, so we are talking about two different kind of levels of encouragement. Those that are, we're trying to train and get ready to be, you know, scholars and uh, a high level of intellectual education from early on. And some children are well kind of pre-ready for that. And then the masses, how, you know, one can do that to, with those, what works with those, new educational methods, etc., etc. Yet what I want to say is this, is that tarbiyah is not tawqifi. It is not set by the Sharia with parameters. It is tarbiyah is whatever works best. And there are some advice and some historical kind of precedents, but it's whatever gets the results. Okay? Whatever gets the results. Let's move on um, uh, and mention... Huh? Just on Couple that. online, yeah, okay. Uh, well, just one really. Uh, advice about waking uh, children for Fajr uh, and to, to get them to teenage seven or ten. So this is a good question. They're asking about Fajr. And should it start at the age of 7 or 10? And I want to say a couple of things about, first of all, assuming this hadith to be authentic. So if we do and we go with it, okay, at the age of 7, right, is a early preparation for the prayer. And 10 is when it gets serious. And then legally, as we said, it's whenever it is, okay, 12, 13 or whatever. Now, that means that legally speaking, you are also punished or rewarded at differing levels at differing levels according to the age of the child so for example if you were to refuse to wake up your child okay but you had a reason to because you felt that it was detrimental for some real reason then until that child becomes legally accountable for the prayer you would not be punished quote unquote does that make sense yeah you would not be punished 
because they are not actually held accountable. However, if you were doing it whilst there was no good reasoning and there is a benefit for them and they do need to learn the prayer and it is coming close for them to actually start to pray properly and you haven't yani, got them ready for it, then you are going to be in trouble because you are then actually one of the reasons why they may not start praying properly when the time actually comes. That's why it's very important. I want to say that after they become uh, 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 post-pubescent, adolescent, okay, and they are living under your control, you will be punished, you will be punished if you do not wake them up for prayer. So that is like 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever. They are now mature, but, and therefore you'd say, if they're mature, then they're mukallaf, okay? They are mukallaf, meaning that they are now legally responsible, so they should be able to be responsible for their own actions. However, they are living under your, your, uh, they're dependent upon you, basically. They're living under your authority. And so therefore, you are the one who controls the rules in the house. And the rules in the house is that prayer must be established by those who are dependent upon you. And so therefore, that's why a person must carry on and continue to do so. I want to extend this point and ask a question. People do ask this, like maybe for wives and husbands. But let's extend it to friends and family, okay? Is it obligatory to wake another adult up for prayer? If they're in your house. If they're in your house. So you're saying that the, the, the answer is dependent upon whether they're dependent upon you. Nope. Yeah? No, I'm saying if they're under your roof. Yep. They're you, yep. Then you should wake them up. Because they're dependent upon you? Oh, right. You're saying even if it's a guest, you mean? Right, right, okay. So you're saying it's not about dependency, it's about that they're in a place of your authority where your rules apply. Absolutely. Is that just for the prayer? Or are you trying to say that there's some special status for the house? No, it's just if they're Muslim and they're staying with you, yep. then there are many reasons why, for example, if they travel or anything like that, they just. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people have no legal excuse, but I'm saying that there's some guest traveling and he stays at your house. You're saying it's obligatory to wake them up. Is that because it's your house? Or is it because... I'm just trying, I guess I'm just trying to understand the basis of the obligation. It's because my house wake up. Alright, okay. Alright. Enjoining good and forbidding evil. That's the obligation. And anyone who's not praying, of course, then that's an evil and you've got to prevent that. Okay, what if I throw back at you and say that a person who's sleeping is not legally accountable? Yeah, but you can't wake him up, so... You can, but the person's not legally accountable. That's also good. The Prophet says in the Quran, and command your, your family to pray and be steadfast upon that. Huh? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Qu anfusakum ahlikum nara. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, save your yourselves and your family from the hellfire. It's very interesting this, this, this discussion. And it's not straightforward as you may think. Because if a person is um, for example, in response to yours, okay, some said that that's that's recommended. Okay? Some said it's recommended, the yani to to uh, 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 the Amr is for recommendation. Um, command your family to pray and then be steadfast upon that you might say how come because a command should be obligatory they said because when a person is uh, awake then you must tell them but when they're asleep they're not legally responsible they're only legally responsible for themselves 
That could be an argument. But it's interesting because Imam al-Nawawi, his conclusion is that it is mustahab to wake up a sleeping person, not obligatory. I think there's a very interesting any basis for that, I think. Okay, legally speaking, it's interesting because once you get into the obligatory, like Imam al-Qurtubi said, for example, Imam al-Qurtubi said it is obligatory to wake up someone who is sleeping. And um, uh, from all kinds of general evidences, okay? And there's no doubt that the most best, best and rewarded act is to do it. And we shouldn't try to reduce the importance of that. And we are living in a time, of course, where we generally tend to find people shy away from that. Because, you know, proselytization and evangelical kind of uh, approaches to life are seen as very off-putting, right? Uh, certainly in this country, in England, it's like a very non-British thing to do. And then, of course, we take that culture. But just generally modern Muslims as well, they don't like this idea, you know, of you putting the pressure upon them. And it's important to understand the ruling, because if you say it's obligatory, then every single time that you don't do it, you are sinning. And I find that difficult to swallow. And I have to say that I agree with the position of Imam al-Nawawi in that a person sets a precedent, <coughs> sets a standard, makes it clear, gives a responsibility, passes over, helps them out if there's an alarm issue, if there's some other kind of problem or whatever. And then after that, then he's free. Because, let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a, uh, a son who's uh, 18 years old, for example, yeah? And he's an idiot, okay? And, you know, he just, he's a complete fool and he thinks that, yeah, I pray when I want. If I don't pray one day, I don't pray. Yeah, the guy's an idiot, obviously. And you've told him, you know, you've, you've tried every nice thing in the book, all every nasty thing in the book. You've tried everything, but he's not seeing sense. So, after now, uh, uh, threatening, 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 what do we do? Sorry? What's class waking someone up to clarify? Does that mean that the person has to physically get up? Or is it telling the person? That's also a good question. What does wake up mean? Do you have to kick them out of bed? Do you have to force them? Or do you have to wake them up? The answer, of course, is just to wake them up. You don't have to yeah, and you do that. Because otherwise, otherwise, then this would become. The, the, the Ummah would fall into anarchy, yeah, and it would be vigilantism, yeah, and, you know? Everyone beating each other up and whatever. And that obviously, that's only a job for. Yeah, and, the uh, the crew, uh, they're the only ones that have got that kind of you know responsibility to go around and yes, yeah. Uh, so you know, um, it's it's about it's about telling them. And I know that some of you might be thinking of the story that I told once in uh, my lecture, the Night of Power, many years ago. Okay, um, but that was a story more for kind of clever kind of folks that don't wake up the person. He might say something which is against Allah and his messenger and so on. That's more an emotional kind of response. In principle, it's a good action. But I believe that to say it's obligatory is a big statement because that requires a direct evidence which would suggest that you would be sinful every single time that a child says no or not no, a child, sorry, a person says no and so on and so forth. Okay, so I think that's the ruling side. As for, I do want to say something more about it, but yeah, go on. Yes, and that's a very important point because obviously the ruling is different if you, your authority goes or not. And I am talking about someone whose authority goes. And it is important to make a differentiation because obviously if your authority is in the house, then you can use more tactics. There's no actual Islamic evidence that someone who has more authority is more whatever as such. I mean, in general, you are more responsible, but it doesn't mean 
that just because you are more responsible, you are, you haven't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Well, you, there is a greater, more responsibility because the Prophet said that all of you are mas'ulun wa kullukum ra'in and mas'uliyatihi. All of you are responsible and you're all held responsible for your flock. And then, the, then he said, the leader is for the people, the husband for the family, the wife for the house in the absence of the uh, husband. So there is a extra responsibility if you are in authority of a house, it's true. But does, is a person, does a person have more tools at his hand because he is the owner of the house? That's the point I want to make. I don't believe so. Because for example, let's say that your brother lives with you and you're supporting him. He's 20 years old and he doesn't want to pray for some reason. Okay, now you are the owner of the house, which means technically you could kick him out. Yeah, and so you say, right, I'm kicking you out. And you know what? If you did that, I think that that's yani permissible. And I think if you did that for the sake of Allah, that might even be yani rewarded. But the question is, is that did it lead him to pray? Right? Did it actually solve the situation? Some will say, well, you know what? When he takes a few nights on the outside, then, you know, he'll realize Then when he comes back in again, he'll be praying absolutely fine. Maybe. Maybe that it turns him the absolute other way and he says, right, and then he goes and, you know, hooks up with, you know, a jihadi John. Yeah? And then he goes right to pot. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And all kinds of things could happen. Yeah, So what I'm saying is that I don't say that just because a person is authority in the house, that that basically means that there's an easier outcome. Because often we will say, especially if they are younger, that you will still look after that person and so on and so forth. It does get complicated. This issue is a lot bigger than it actually seems. Okay? And you often see husbands and wives doing it to one another. Okay? And even as some kind of anger issue as well. So, for example, it's well known that husbands who are angry with their wives and their wives are dependent upon them, be waking them up. And he goes, Right, I'm going to get back here. I'm not going to wake you up. Is it, po- is it possible to do that? Is it possible to punish your wife by not waking up for Fajr? That's like hardcore that, you know what I'm saying? It's your loss though, isn't it? Yeah? You don't wake her up. Well, it is, yeah, your loss as well. And uh, it's a bit immature, a little bit, Yanni. But if you're angry, then you're angry, Yanni, you know? <laughs> Last time. She has the football finished anyway. <laughs> That's time. You said an hour, an hour and now you're breaking rules every week. The problem is, is that if I do this now an hour, then that means, Yanni, we'll be section for the next two, two less stories and stick to the text. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> You'd like to go off on your stories, that's probably I'm shy. I don't know why she's that. I'm very angry with yeah. The last two, three weeks, I just want to say Shazada has not been contacting me at all. Not a single Kansas on any night. Not a single phone call. Oh, wait, wait, wait. When did you not call? a single phone call. No, don't talk about yesterday. That was all for your own reasons. No, I rang you the other day in the morning when I was on the Oh yeah, bored on the way to work, so you use me as his trouble buddy to keep him awake. I knew, I knew you were on the uh, on, on the school run, and I was keeping you company. Where and then I found out he wasn't on the school run, and you found some other person to drop his Exactly, off. exactly, <laughs> exactly. You even exactly. got rid of that obligation. I don't know why he's so upset with me. I don't know. I don't know. I'm a skin. I deserve all the sympathy in the world. The only person that gave me sympathy is Doctor Shazad. What was somebody any around? Right. Fed me, and I have taken a bowl, the, the begging bowl to neighbors. Feed me, please. Anymore. <laughs> Anymore. Do you, you want me to remind you about that day Anymore. again? Anymore. No, no. What Dr. happened? Dr. Shazad, he bought biryani, asked had two couple of days. Shazad Salim, he goes, go and find someone else to bring food. The, the, day, the day biryani arrived when your mum asked you to do what, sorry? What? 
we would then as a community make ghusl for him etc 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 because from the outside the person is a muslim regardless of whether he is and regardless whether he intended it or not does that make sense that's the point which is being made um uh Um, I just want to just also read to you what Sheikh Uthameen said. I mean, I tell you what's interesting. There's a modern benefit and there's a classical benefit. Let's look at the classical one first. He goes, The benefit of knowing this is that He goes that if we therefore accept him as a Muslim because of that, then after he finishes the prayer and he's hanging around, then we will basically expect from him Islamic actions. Okay, we expect from him the Islamic requirements. So if he goes and sits in the sister section and starts to chill, we say, bro, yani, take a hike, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and so on and so forth. And he goes, and then he will also uh, inherit in, uh, the Muslims and he will inherit from the Muslims and his family and so on. We will treat him and act around him like all of the normal Islamic kind of rules. But if he did it to try and um, uh, humiliate, uh, sorry, make fun of the religion yani as a, some kind of joke and pretend to be it as like to try to mock the religion, then he is to be considered, for, for, then we consider him to be murtad, okay? Murtad, an apostate. And والفرق بين كونه مرتدا وبين كفره الأصلي أن كفر الردة لا يقر عليه بخلاف الكفر الأصلي فيقر عليه. فالكافر بالردة يطالب بالإسلام فإن أسلم وإلا قتلناه يعني that's يعني obviously a passage which is never going to be read in English ever okay but I just want to basically say that what Sheikh Uthameen is saying is that there is a legal difference and he's right between a person who is actually a non-Muslim and remains a non-Muslim okay and a person who becomes Muslim and then leaves it in a way of actually causing harm to the religion because the one who causes harm to religion is held legally accountable, whereas the one who is original uh, non-Muslim, he's left in his state. He's allowed to do things which are, are anti-Islamic because he doesn't claim to be Muslim. Do you, do you understand? That's the point which is being made. This is the point, of course, which is the defense of every scholar for why the rules of apostasy even actually exist. Because there are two complete different things. When a person is outside, outright non-Muslim, don't try to pretend that he is uh, doesn't try to weaken the religion from inside, doesn't try to humiliate the people, but is speaking from a non-Muslim point of view and making observations, he's allowed to do that and he is left alone because he's not, yani, you know, Muslim. Whereas someone who tries and pretends and messes about the religion and then tries to weaken it, causes sedition, causes stability, then comes out, in, out, messes around, then they're treated in a very, very different way because that's like treason. And then all the re reasoning for treason then comes into play. So that's the point. The, the interesting contemporary benefit that I found is that obviously we live in a time of great suspicion. And we find all kinds of people coming in and you're not sure, is this a new convert? Is this new MI5? Is it yani, someone who's crazy? Is it whatever and whatnot? And so on and so forth. And it's difficult. You don't know. And the benefit of this point is that, yes, whoever this person is, whatever suspicions you might have about this person, it is the sunnah to treat him as a Muslim regardless. It doesn't matter who's told you. And I remember this happens, subhanAllah, I give you first-hand experience. And there are a few people who might be able to be back in the day. I think actually, Jawad, maybe you might remember this uh, chap, convert who came to the masjid. 
and he kept coming, chocolate glasses, you see him on TV nowadays. And for the longest time, people thought he was an MI5 agent. The longest time. I never knew anything about the guy except that everyone used to say, he's MI5 agent, MI5 agent. He used to come to the masjid in 94, 95, 96, 97, Ambrose and so on. And uh, you see him around. Miskin was just a basic convert. He's a bit, but the problem is, because he's a bit weird, you know? Because some converts come with some Ajib kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they do, they're not, you know, they're not like, you see, the problem with Pak's is that they expect every new Muslim to act like a Pak. That's the big problem. So if you don't get a big hug and you don't get like, you know, you know, so when you get an awkward kind of handshake, you know, the guy can't even shake your hand properly. And when you're trying to go in for a hug and then his arm back about to break, he's like, you know, he can't, he's all tense, yeah, and he, you know what I'm saying? And you think, oh, it's a bit off, yeah, and he, yeah. So, and then they, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't kind of, you know, chill with you as you might. So packs get suspicious and there's associated activity back in those days. You know, I remember that masjid was very, very heavily bugged. There were foreign students who were there from Libya and other places where their governments were bugging them and they were sending yani, their own security agents yani, to monitor them and so the rest of us were with them monitored. So it was a very yani, high suspicion kind of event at that time as well. But I'm just saying him, Miskeen, okay, he got the brunt of it. Alhamdulillah, nothing serious happened, but it could do, right? Something could have happened. And I'm saying that the Sunnah, and I remember all the time, I always used to say, Akhi, that's haram, yani, that's not right. But then they used to say, no, no, we know, trust me, we've seen this, we've seen that. I said, yeah, well, what? what am I going to do? Anyway, alhamdulillah, this guy, mashallah, he's held out on his deen for a long time, he's uh, actively practicing now, as, as I said, I saw him somewhere, whatever. Still don't know his name. And, um, uh, but just goes to say, show that we don't judge upon doubts and suspicion or whatever, we judge upon what's obvious, okay? And he's Muslim. So that's the benefit of that point. So if there's any questions to close the subject, then let's do that. And then Shaz can then go home to eat his yani, uh, chicken pie, which I can tell you that he has not shared with me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is an apostate? <laughs> an apostate is a Muslim who loses their mind and goes crazy and says, I'm no longer Muslim. Make sense, Mani? All right. Yes. Uh, just want to make a point when you mentioned about is your obligation for a person who is in authority in the house to wake whether it's wife or the son and so on. Can you clarify that? Because uh, some, people, some sisters... Uh, yeah, the whole whether, yeah. like, uh, what does it mean if a person yeah. is the authority, Yanni? Yeah, yeah. Authority or even living on the same roof. Uh, as in, is it my obligation to work with my parents and my siblings and my whatever, whatever. If I'm with me, living on the same roof. So, uh, referring back to the hadith as well about seven years old and hitting and everything put together. Uh, the Hadith of Rasulullah about splitting the water in the morning, uh, that doesn't obligate, that doesn't uh, show any indication of for the husband or wife either way that this person needs to be waken up and it's obligation or anything. And then referring to the ayah, the Sa'alim bin Masaitir, for example. So this is just, we just put that in Namaz Mudakir. So we not here as a, take, can't, we can't take the responsibility as an obligation, you know, to wake an individual, even though we are in authority. Yeah, I, I want to say that what you mentioned about the Prophet was sprinkling water um, and the uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling the Prophet وسلم, and remind you're only a reminder which indicates that you're not having to force what you need to do. Yes, that could indicate that a person is not obligated to go the full way. At the same time, at the same time, 
it's not a burning proof because you can argue cleverly against both you could say that anyone who was sprinkled by the Prophet was up never needed any further you know do we have another example of someone who wasn't happy to be, to be woken up that's the acid test no no that's what you would indicate as a result of this hadith for example but it is not a what I would say a, a, an issue which which you know what we call remember what we said yeah means there's absolutely only one definitive way of understanding the incident and the answer is no there are potential different ways of understanding the incident because we don't know if there was someone who didn't want to wake up could the Prophet have gone further maybe had he gone further also uh, is also not a verse which uh, proves that the Prophet only has to remind the Prophet gave our punishment the Prophet gave, acted in the rule of Qadi whilst the Quran and this verse was still in play when he was the head of Medina so this verse does not mean that the Prophet is only ever told to remind and never actually execute a command or a ruling so um, I don't think that like I said that's why I said this discussion is interesting I don't think any side has a very clear evidence either way that it is absolutely obligatory okay and that's why I myself refrain from saying that a person will be punished if they do not wake up sleeping people for prayer I refrain I would say that it's the Islamic thing to do it's the right thing to do it's the Sunnah thing to do it's unimaginable that a Muslim would leave it but I don't want to make it obligatory for A, the lack of a direct evidence, and B, for the fact that once that happens, then the legal responsibility upon a person every single time someone remains asleep is something that my mind can't even get, get around. Yeah, and it's huge, huge. And Allah knows best. So I think, um, and I want to say that that does not mean in any single way that you're not to wake up children and so on and so forth. And I do know that there are a lot of people who really say, ah, oh, they got school tomorrow, and ah, oh, they're tired, and they're ill, blah, blah, blah. I want to say the following, okay? A lot of people are obsessed with bringing their children to the masjid, and they cry about it day and night, saying that, you know, they, uh, the mosque only prohibited my kids, and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. I'm a massive fan of these mosques that prohibit children, because the people who make the problem, and children, of course, they're referring to under sevens, or under sixes, yeah? And I didn't see any masjid that banned uh, uh, a, a normal, sensible, good child. Yes, they're, they're, they're basically banning young children. And I never saw, as far as I know, a parent who who made a fuss over it who has good children who they wake up for the prayer in the morning. I know that's a big judgment call I'm making, but I'm happy to judge those people. What I want to say is that the majority of the people who moaned about it and said that you're, you know, that's against the sunnah and you should allow children to come to the mosque, whatever, whatnot. They're the same people that do not wake their children up every morning for prayer. Because for them, those are acts of show to, uh, to, to help assuage their guilty conscience yani, of their failure of raising their children properly upon the prayer. And so for them, the odd coming to the masjid with their child is like a big event for them. Whereas the people who really are concerned with the tarbiyah of getting their children to pray, they know that it's not as important for the children when they're young to actually come to the prayer at all. Especially when they don't even know how to stand or to weep properly or to keep themselves clean or anything like that. 
In actual fact, what we want to see from these people is that they are at the age of 7, 8, 9, 10, and then especially at 10, 11, 12, they are saying, keeping it so uh, focused that they are with their children, praying with them all the time, waking them up all the time. That's a person I take seriously. That's a person's complaint I will take seriously. And that's the person who's not going to complain because they know that they bring their children to the masjid from 8, 9, 10, and so on. You know what I'm saying? And I'll go further. I'll go further. The people who complain about this, yani, okay, they're complaining about the one occasion that they bring their child when they're 4 or 3 or 5 and they got told off by someone. And through ages 8, 9, 10, 11, you don't see them at all with their child, yani, at the time where they should be there every morning, every evening, and so on and so forth. So... I want to say that when people complain, how is it that I do this? How do I do that? I'm having difficulty. Okay? That difficulty is for two reasons. Either because they've got the tarbiyah completely wrong from the beginning, and they need to start early, and starting late is too, too wrong, and they have to be regular upon waking children up. And then there's another question, which is, I'm having difficulty actually physically waking them up. Well, you know what? As Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shampiti famously said, he said that, you know what? Just stop for a second and think of your child in the fire and your child in heaven. And then tell me how difficult it is to wake your child up. He goes, any difficulty you have will disappear like that. And it's simple as that. It really is simple as that. You make yourself a decision when you see this child and whatever, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. You know what? If you know it's important enough, you will find a way soon enough. It doesn't need to be physical. It doesn't need to be harsh. But you will find a way. You might have to pay more. You might have to give more rewards. You might have to do whatever. But you know what? If you care for this child to actually make it, then this is very, very important. So... I think that's important from a, a child point of view. Yeah, child point of view. Any further questions? Okay, what's up? Uh, Mrs. Moisrit, last week, uh, missing Salah at Fajr's So you see, for example, because it's happened um, in the summer, when Fajr's quite early on, say so you decide to like, stay from the like, retire and go on. So you know what? Let's deal with this next week, but don't forget. Because we're going to do some stuff on missing the prayer next week, uh, 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 especially with Fajr and Times. That's gonna, I know that I said that on Facebook today, we're going to cover that about what if you wake up five minutes before sunrise, but we've run out of time, so we're going to cover that next week, inshallah. If anyone was watching it just for that reason, then forgive me. Then you have to come back next week. <laughs> then you have to come back and next, next week. week. We'll make an excuse for And then next week, we'll make another excuse for the following week, and that's just that's any marketing tactics. Yani. Very low. Very low. Okay, guys. Jazakumullah khair. I appreciate Yani hanging on. Subhanakallah. Bihamdika. Shalwallah. Ilayla. And. Wa astaghfirullah. Wa atubu. Wa asalamu alaikum. Wa rahmatullah. Wa barakatuh.